Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, to Christchurch Jerusalem and uh, to our evening Bible study. We're in the book of Leviticus, chapter 6, and it's a delight to welcome you all. We are not the only ones who are present. The Spirit is present, and we believe in an omnipresent God, which means His Spirit is sitting with all of you right now, uniting us all together in the same Spirit, looking at the same Scriptures. It's actually quite special when you think about it. And we acknowledge that the Spirit is present, usually through prayer. And so our, our brother, uh, the Reverend Neville Jones, now one, of, one of the Anglican Church's newest deacons, will pray us in. Brother Neville. Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to teach and guide us and to lead us into all truth. Father, we set aside this time now to gather around your word. We pray that you would enlighten our understanding and touch our hearts with revelations from your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. The notes from last week's study should be actually attached to those who are listening on the podcast or the download. Um, I put them in the chat. And here we go. This is a summary of our discussion from last week. Leviticus 6, verses 1 to 7. Now, this portion of chapter 6 continues the instructions for the guilt offering mentioned in chapter 5, verses 14 and 19. The guilt offering is an animal sacrifice mentioned previously for unintentional sins against the holy things of the Lord, and now it is required in cases of intentional sins, of theft, extortion, and lying to cheat a neighbor. The sin offering was for sins against the Lord. The guilt offering is for sins against the holy, holy things and other people. In rabbinic tradition, the guilt offering protected people in cases of doubt, that is, the guilty party didn't know for certain if he or she had actually committed an offence, so you could offer the guilt offering just in case. Stealing and swearing falsely are directly against two of the Ten Commandments, and they are atoned for through the guilt offering. The process for atonement and forgiveness begins with the returning of the stolen property with the addition of an extra fifth of the value. Why the addition of a further 20% is not explained. The reimbursement must be given to the offended party before the guilt offering can be presented to the Lord. And we see this pattern to fix the relationship with our neighbor before bringing our offerings to the altar of the Lord in Matthew 5. Leviticus is also demonstrating that the sacrifice or offering, while important, is second to the relationships between people. The spirit of the law is people first, and the same theology runs through both the Hebrew and the Greek Bible. Once restitution has been made between neighbors, the guilty party proceeds to offer his or her guilt offering to the Lord. Two people have been offended by the sin, God and people. 
Having made right with the person, the offender now makes right with the Lord. God's requirement is an unblemished animal of a certain value. Sacrifices had a monetary value attached to them. The biblical text does not disclose the amount. Some commentaries indicated that the value scaled in proportion to the wealth of the individual. The rich would offer more to the Lord and the poor would offer less. In both cases, the atonement would be efficacious. Should the offender be unable to procure an appropriate animal, then a monetary replacement was given in its stead to the proper value, as indicated by verse 6. The tradition developed then that financial offerings could be given to the temple in place of animal sacrifice. And we see this tradition appearing in the Gospels. When Jesus watches the rich proceed to offer large amounts of money, whilst a poor widow makes small contributions that truly impresses the Lord. All of this is predicated on the desire of the offender to actually repent and restore the broken relationship between their God and their neighbor. A thief who does not repent and or cannot afford to repay the debt plus 20% begins indentured servitude. He becomes a slave. These instructions, the ones that we're reading in Leviticus, for the guilt offering pertain only to the worshipper of the Lord. You hear what I just said? The Torah applies only to the worshipper, not to someone who doesn't care. Lastly, the Leviticus text declares that the priest make atonement before the Lord and forgiveness is granted to the offender. Atonement comes from the priest, not from the sacrifice. Although the sacrifice is concurrent with the actions of the priest. Forgiveness requires more than simply an offering. It requires repentance, confession, compensation, and restoration. All of which begin in the heart of the offender who acknowledges his or her guilt before man and God. Right, I think that's a pretty fair summary of our little chat from last week. And as you can see, I think there's quite a lot there. That uh, when, we're, when we're reading Leviticus, let's remember all of these rules and obligations only apply to the worshipper. They don't apply to people who just don't care, which is an interesting thought when you think about it. Okay. Okay, so now we're going to read a series of uh, offerings. Might seem a little boring, seeing that we've done them all before in the last previous chapters. Why does, the, does Leviticus want to do a little retelling? Well, let's see. Let's see what some of the spiritual applications can be. So I'm going to be reading from uh, the ESV today, <clears throat> Leviticus 6, beginning at verse 8. Read the chapter and see how we go. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. 
And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and he'll put on his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar, and he'll put them beside the altar. And then he shall take off his garments, and he'll put on other garments, and he'll carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. and He shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and it shall burn on it. The fat of the peace offerings, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take it, shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn it as a memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It will be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat it, as decreed forever throughout your generations. From the Lord's food offerings, what, what, whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed. Tenth of an ephah of the fine flour as a regular grain offering. Half of it in the morning, half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priest from among Aaron's sons, who is anointed to succeed him, shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned, shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall a sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood splashes on a garment, you shall wash uh, that on which it was splashed in a holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement of the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. Okay. So there you go. A few, a whole uh, retelling of the different offerings. Initially might be a bit confusing, but let's have a look at it. Based on, on the Peshat, on the initial reading, is there anything there that jumps out at you or that you've noticed before or that you haven't noticed before? Well, that stood out. A lot of things. It's interesting because in verse 18 at the end and also in verse 27, my version says uh, must be holy versus what you read, Aaron, which sounds like a little different approach. So in verse the end of verse 18 and verse 27, everyone who touches it 
its flesh must be holy. In other words, it's speaking about the person who's bringing it versus the way your version said it a little differently there that seemed a little yeah. different. I know I had to look at that because different different translations have different things. The Hebrew is not as clear as you would like to make it sound. So um, whoever touches it has become holy, which is an interesting thought. We'll talk about that when we get there, but, but it's, a good, it's a good point. Is holiness transferable? And what's yes. the answer? Yes. Yes, correct. Yeah. Holiness is transferable. Sin is transferable. Remember, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We can't keep sin within the camp. What you want to keep in the camp is holiness. You want that to infect you. You want that to, to um, spill over onto the community. Roddy, you're up. I was with Sharon where we're reading uh, 6, and it's going to be verse, I think it's 18. Mine says, whatever touches. Mine says, whatever, not who. It says, whatever. Correct. Correct, yeah. Yep. I, I don't know. I'm just for us to discuss when we get there. Yep. No, you're correct, Roddy. It is, it's whatever. It's, it's not a person. It's anything. There is something about the holiness of God that's infectious, which is actually a very yep. nice thought when you think about it. But, yes. But would that be inclusive of a person also? Correct. I'm asking. I don't know. Okay. No, that, that's, I a, that's see, a good point. I, I, I will see a lot of things about it, Roddy. When we get to that, Moti's got done some research on uh, um, okay, the great. sin offering and that kind of touching. So we'll, when, when it gets to, his, to, to that channel, I'll call on the rabbi for a, for a little um, parashata shavua. Brazil, Yvonne, your hand is raised. I thought it was interesting that it just several times about the fire on the altar, the burnt, the burnt offering should never go out. He talks about it many, many times and how it's, you know, in the, the, the context of being kind of uh, lit by heavenly fire, it just keeps mentioning that. I think it's interesting and it doesn't really say exactly why, why it can't go out. You're right. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Um, and then the other thing is just the idea of, um, you know, the, uh, where is it here? The, the changing of the garments, you know, holy and common can't be confused. So there's always, again, the, the differentiation between the holy and the non-holy and uh, the changing the garments. Yes, this whole little section is a retelling of the offerings and sacrifices. And it describes, you know, how you, how you handle them, what the preparation is, how you eat it, how you dispose of it, and even what you're wearing while you're doing it. Oh my gosh, talk about pedantic. Covering yeah, your inner But God's in the details. Is he not? So <laughs> yeah, devil's yeah. in the details, apparently, but um, yeah, God's there too. The Butterfields, which one of you would like to have a hand raise? Aaron, we, we've just said that the a little leaven makes everything sin, right? Yep. Now, and, and if you touch something holy, you can be made holy. If we advance this to uh, our current day with Lord Jesus Christ, and we told in Romans eleven sixteen, if the first root be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. Does this can this be understood then that because the Lord is holy, even if I have leaven, He makes me holy and overrides that? Yeah, I think so, and I think that you know the whole idea of being making sure that we're actually attached. To the vine, abide in me, and I'll abide in you. Yes. And, if, and if that's actually true, then His holiness, His righteousness, His uh, uh, 
his, his sanctification is, is overriding, I think, our unworthiness. Amen. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I see a lot of these things when, um, you know, why is it in James we're instructed to bring oil and anoint people while we're praying? Yes. I mean, surely can't we just pray? What is it about oil? Like what's, what's so special about a few drops of you know, olive oil on somebody's skin and forehead or hands or whatever? But there's something about it that if you've actually got an anointing oil that is set and marked just for that purpose and has no other function, you use it for nothing else other than to bring out and say, brother, sister, I am praying with you and interceding before the Lord. Then there's something special about that. Amen. And that, and that is infectious. That is, and, and, uh, and, and you see that uh, the, the holy handkerchief of Antioch in the book of Acts. Yeah. Okay? okay. It's touched an apostle. Okay. So what do we care? It's got the sweat of the apostle on it. Well, please wash it. No, let us not do that. Let us send it around to the churches and touch other people and they will be healed. There was something special about it, which we, we I think, in our day and age, we don't understand holiness. Um, Probably because we live in such an unholy environment, we, we've sort of kind of lost that. Yeah. that. So, 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 Aaron, what, what, where I'm going with this thing also is that, so where the priest is changing his garment, I, I'm curious, I don't suppose we have an answer as to why the Lord would not let holiness leave that place. That's also a good question. It was actually confined to an area, wasn't it? He says, now, once you're done, then you take this outside and you dump it out and you got to change your clothing. And yes. that's also very interesting. Um, maybe he, yeah, that's a good question. What was he trying to just to tell the people of Israel? Uh, good question. I, I honestly, I don't think I know. Okay, uh, Sharon, you have a hand raised. Yeah, it's just really interesting, real quick here. Um, they, I think relating to that, what David was saying there, like in Romans 3, I find that the best, one of the best passages in the New Testament explaining, you know, like Christ being our propitiation, you know, like our appeasement of for God to, to mm -hmm. you know, so whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So there seems to be this deep concept here that, you know, God sort of has this whole kind of Judeo method of, you know, dealing with sin and all its intricate details. But then, like, like, how does this relate in a sense? Like, then now Christ sort of passed over, or God, I guess, passed over all of the sins that were committed in the times past in the process mm -hmm. to be so like because the previous verse talks about being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in christ jesus like that's the preface to it right we will have to discuss that thing when when we pick up what paul says in a variety of different texts how does the messiah become our sin offering and when we do i'll call on Moulton because he's gone away and done a lot of research for me on on this um on this on this thing nigeria shimshon good to see you buddy got a hand raised yes uh, shalom everyone yeah, I believe that it's um, it's a protection for the priest's wood, um, so that when the priest goes out, it doesn't go and um, incur some kind of um, uncleanliness from the people and brings it back into the um, courts where he's serving God, where he's, um, and no one else has the access and he, he, he pollutes that place. So it's a kind of protection that he's not allowed to take that blood outside and um, bring on cleanliness in. Yep. On this point, I would just like to talk about clothing. What should we wear 
when we are in the presence of the Lord. What do you think, guys? We should definitely cover our undergarments. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you can't wear your underwear to church? And that's yeah. all? We had private parts. We need to wear clothes that shows a reverence for the living God and not something that, that, that flaunts the flesh because Lord God is holy. And we're supposed to walk away from the flesh and in the spirit, right? Yeah. We're not supposed to walk in the pride of the flesh uh, or, or in the lust of the flesh, etc. So, and I think it's about humbleness. I, I yes, yeah. and and also prudence, and also the understanding of, of what what it means to be standing in front of a holy God. I can only reflect <clears throat> being um, uh, when perhaps serving communion, and you and we might have a. And we used to have lots of tours Christchurch. There would be some nationalities that like to wear very little uh, when they when they go on holiday, and um, when they come up for communion, and they sort of you know they kneel down. Not a lot is hidden, and and I have to say that when you when you're serving communion, yeah, absolutely nowhere you don't know where to look. You know, you look up, you look down, you look left, you look right. You're trying to find their eyes. Their eyes are not looking at you. Um, you know, it all gets weird. So, uh, and, and all you're trying to do is have a holy moment. But instead of having a holy moment, you're actually starting to have a panic session. Like, oh, my gosh, is my wife looking at me? Please tell me I'm not looking at something that I shouldn't be. You know, not right now. This would be really bad. You know, shall I stare at the guy? That's even worse, you know. So, um, so you, you have no idea. And you really wish. That some people would just look, just do you mind wearing a shirt? If that would if that's okay. Um, but God seemed to think take clothing actually quite seriously. And uh, especially when in a holy place. And 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 I and I think that we in our culture um we lose the the idea of clothing. I I, I know from Africa, and perhaps Shimtron can reflect on this, um various tribal groupings have special colors. And patterns oh. and designs, and they are very yeah. they they are very powerful, and they they tell a lot of history and a lot of uh, uh, that kind of stuff. And when when African people visit Israel, and for those of us who live here, we know they are colorful, and you know whole groups all dress exactly the same. And all you want to do is go up to the people and say, "You guys look great. You know, you guys look really smart." You know? <laughs> So that, that's right, Jim John. Is that what you guys do? Yes, absolutely. You are very correct, um, Aaron. Um, a lot of um, tribal groups have um, very special clothings, which they wear for very special occasion. And um, uh, it depends on the kind of occasion. But when it comes to do with um, a very solemn occasion, um, they, they do a lot of covering um, that, 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 um, that is very decent. Um, a lot of times people always say, God sees the heart and, um, you know, I'm just worshiping God out of the heart and, you know, use that as an excuse for whatever they want to put on. But I always say that um, Paul says that um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, it, it's not talking about the heart, it was talking about the body. So we cannot just um, hold on to the scripture that says, no, my heart is clean before God. No, you need to present your body also. So it's very, very important. Clothing is important. Um, God wants us to be holy uh, people unto him. Quite a good point, Shimshon. Thank you very much. Teresa from London, you've been patient. I just wanted to add, really, the I, I'm just reiterating in a way what David has said, but I do think 
perhaps that um, we've forgotten in the church about reverence for God and about that applying to what we wear. And very often you see the worship group, they're right up front facing the people and they're in the most skimpy clothes you can imagine or scruffy clothes. And, you know, I know we don't want to get too staid about this. Um, so you've got to wear your Sunday best and a, and a hat and so on. I'm not coming from that place, but I do think we should look presentable. And, and again, it is about, in a sense, having the attitude of I always give my best to the Lord. And I don't mean Sunday best. I just mean I give my best. And uh, and it is so that we're seen as a set apart people, I would have thought. But I do think it's quite important because it's an expression of us as members, as believers. So that, that was what I just wanted to add. It's a good point. Sometimes it is true. A lot of our young people wear, old people too, we wear a lot of scruffy clothing. And I sometimes wonder why we choose to do that. Maybe it's the only clothing we have. Or, yeah, yeah. and if that's true, that's okay. But um, if it, it, what was the motive behind wearing I'm wearing this. Okay, Moti, you've got your hand raised? Yes, I just like to talk about the Jewish dress code, if I may. Oh, please do, yes. Well, as many of you know that the Jews never pray while wearing shorts, they always stand or sit properly while they pray, but they never pray while laying down or casually sitting on a couch. And if they go to the synagogue, to pray as a community, they always dress nicely and wear a kippah as well as an additional hat on Shabbat. And the woman wear long shirts and long sleeve blouses. So that's pretty much what the Jewish uh, dress code looked like. That's right. So you would never go to a synagogue in shorts, would you, Moti? I wouldn't, but sorry now, but the Sephardim do. I'm sorry to say that. I don't want to <laughs> Is that right? Oh, no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah like I was in a Sephardic shul once in Naharia, and I saw this guy. He, he looked like he was just coming from the beach. I don't know. That's their style, but Maybe I wouldn't know. do that. And I never did that, and I'm not going to do that. I, I remember David Pelegi once telling me, because we were discussing prayer in a men's Bible study. I don't know if you were there, uh, David. It might have been after you'd left. We're sitting around our table, and David says, you know, when should we pray? And we would pray unceasingly, pray all the time. And, you know, well, when should you not pray? Anyway, what do you mean when should you not pray? I said, well, should you pray while you're on the toilet as opposed to perhaps asking God for deliverance? Or something? But, you know, um, you know, you know, and David made this comment. He said, perhaps you shouldn't pray when you're sitting on the couch in your underwear, eating potato chips, watching the right. football, scratching your unmentionables. You know, Correct. maybe that should is, 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 is an inappropriate time to start beseeching the Lord. If that is not biblical, Aaron. That is not biblical. A, it says pray without ceasing, and you can it pray. Does. Yeah, but, but, but think about it. Think about it. No, come on, Sharon. Think about it. God is holy. There are some times, okay, we're praying unceasingly doesn't mean what you think of it. it. Is that when you're going to get into a holy moment, perhaps you should actually put into your brain. I'm, I'm actually standing before a holy God. And if so, what should I wear? How should I behave? You better do what, what we do. Just stand and dress nicely. Do the stand and dress nicely. Okay? That's safe. The Jewish style. 
the Jewish stuff. Yeah, there you go. Look, as a as a as an Anglican, one of one of my criticisms or criticisms that people have of us is, you know, you guys always wear funny clothing. Why do you wear this funny clothing? You're stupid. And my only Good. response, and I really don't have any response other than to say, okay, well, what should I wear? No, you tell me. But, but you Aaron, find in the Bible what I should wear, okay. and I'll wear it's it. Time. But Aaron, yeah, Aaron, Aaron, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. give me give me five grand, I can put one on. Great, but real quick, Aaron E, this begs the question. Sorry, Aaron G, I know you have your hand up, but it just begs the question: like, what makes you holy, though? Right? It's not what you do. Like your acceptance before God. Ah, is wait a second, you. Sharon. No, holiness also has something to do with what you do. It's got to do with both. Never separate the two together. What you find in Leviticus is both intention and action, and they are concurrent. And what we're finding in Leviticus is many times the intention precedes the action. Confess first, then do this. You know, go make right with your neighbor, then come to God. Well, why can't right. I just come to God? Right. No, 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 but like, we're not talking buddy. about that. No, we're not talking about that. Go to your neighbor first. My, my only warning, Sharon, is don't go down the line that only puts us in a, in a realm that that dismisses an action. Actions are also holiness. Now, yeah, I do have to go back for a second because you said in the bathroom, right? And I'm just referencing First Thessalonians five seventeen: pray without ceasing. Yes, so but that's not what it means. That doesn't mean pray with it because when you go to sleep, you obviously cannot pray. And when you're doing something in a, uh, loving with your spouse, you're not praying to the Lord. You're thinking of something else. Okay, there are there. Don't don't I say prayed that, during, that. I prayed that, during that time before. Yes, yeah. So pray without ceasing doesn't mean <laughs> what what it thinks that you mean. Okay, so Aaron, the other Aaron. I'm an Aaron, but there's okay. there's a small Aaron. Small Aaron, say well, something. I have to, I have to follow that. Dare you. Um, okay. <laughs> Aaron, trying to follow that one. Okay, no, I just say uh, here in the you know, American context, my wife talking with uh, women around her age when they bring this up, she will say. Do you get dressed up for your date? If you do, why is that person worthy of more honor than the Lord? Very good question. Thank you for that. That's a good question, Aaron. Appreciate that. Okay. And I have a suspicion that the Africans understand this a little more than we do. Okay. Um, perhaps in our culture in the West, we've become very individualistic. But that's a very good, very good thought, Aaron. If I dress up for a date, is not God worth more than than than? my date and the answer must be yes okay uh going down the line let's have a look here um actually neville you had a hand up yeah okay i just want to do uh suggest a, a thought about pray without ceasing I, i've thought about it for a long time and for me the clearest way of understanding that means pray without giving up in other words pray perseveringly never give up never throw the towel in continue to pray you know you have children in your family or family members who persist in resisting the lord what do you do you persevere you persist in praying for them never give in oh that's nice thank you very much thank you uh yvonne the whole concept of you know of garments i mean you can do a whole study on that and it's just it reminds me of you know the adam and eve before they had no clothing and it was fine and then the covering and then you know in isaiah the garments of righteousness the whole concept of covering the nakedness 
And um, there's another passage in Job. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Um, my justice was like a robe and a turban. So it's just the whole concept of, of covering the body, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it, you, you could do a whole study. I, the whole concept of, of robes and garments, I've, I've really, really enjoyed studying that. And it's just, um, yeah. it, and then make such a big deal about it. I know we kind of joke about it, but I was previous, but he, he does talk about making sure that the priests put on their linen undergarments, the whole concept of concealing the nudity and um, yes there is a there is a definitely a sense of modesty here and holiness which is very outwardly physical but also inwardly remember that it's interesting the way leviticus is talking about our calling it starts with a heart but it's outplayed also in the natural and something physical and something that you actually can see and experience okay shimshan get a hand raise Yes, um, when we talk about um, in the beginning when God created um, us, um, yes, I know in Hollywood we always um, think that um, the people were naked and um, as, the, as the scripture puts it out there. Um, but if you look at that text, we were wearing something that was um, different from the kind of clothing we wear now. In fact, um, the rabbis make us to understand that we are putting on lights. Yeah. Um, because yeah. if you see the, the awe for light and the awe for skin of the animal, it's the same sound, uh, apart from the aleph and the ayim that starts the, the spelling. And so the rabbis um, concludes that um, it's the light that shield us. Um, and for me, I believe that God had to make some noise so for Adam, so that he cannot appear before him um, when the light departed, so that he would not die, because he was the priest, he was the high priest in the in the garden. And we know that in Leviticus, he told us that the priest should put on the undergarment so that when he appears before God, his, um, his, um, his nakedness will not be seen and he dies. You know, it's a, it's a big judgment. So God actually, um, out of mercy, um, allowed the allowed Adam not to see him so that he doesn't die. So God is very interested in what we put on. It's a very serious business for him. It is. And in a rabbinic way was this, this idea that when we were created, we looked like God. So God was light. So we actually were, were light. And then later we were given skin. That's a rabbinic tradition. But also notice that when, when the, when the, uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord. They became traitors, which is the word bogged. And what did God give them? He gave them bagedim, which is the word clothing. It's the same word. It's an interesting little phrase that uh, that, that clothing becomes actually quite important, even right from the from the beginning. And because you see that concept with with the Yeshua in the New Testament of the transfiguration, he has that that gar- you know, the, the clothing, the brightness, light. It just brings it from from Adam and Eve that whole concept of being dressed yes, in light. Somehow we look very very special. Yeah, we look we look very very special. And related um, to that, Aaron, if I could just jump in for a second, is that the concept even in Adam and Eve before they fell that they were naked and felt no shame. So there's an mm-hmm. element where we're created beautiful. God, our bodies are beautiful, and all that God created, and that we don't when we do it God's way, right? Like even in this world in 2021, when we do, you know 
marital relations, you know, uh, God's way, we feel no right. shame, right? Yep. So the concept is, yeah, like, you're totally open and God's there. And my concept mm -hmm. is that, you know, you give thanks in everything, right? It's not just yep. sort of. Oh, yeah. Amen. David or Vida. Yeah, I was just going to say, I agree with about presenting being holy before God in a sense of giving God reverence and he's 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 an all-powerful God and we honor him and we give him the honor he deserves through the way we dress. I'm not I'm not saying anything against that in the physical, but we really do have the most wonderful spiritual clothing, garments of righteousness and the robes of salvation. And that is amazing because Amen. that is our covering and that's what God sees. I mean, the physical, yes, I understand it. It's, everything is to honor God and to do things from a pure heart. But yep. he's not seeing what we wear. He's seeing that garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness mm -hmm. in Christ. This is true. And at the same time, remember in Revelation, what are we judged on? Our faith. It says what you're judged on what you did. So it's, it, on, it tracks on two levels, always tracks on two levels. What does God see? He sees our heart. He sees the, the, the righteousness that he puts on by the blood of the Lamb. At the same time, he also sees our heart and what our hearts produce through our deeds. And they track together. They, they, they run together. They're inseparable. They, but isn't they, it like Paul says that everything we do in the physical is like dirty rags before God? In a sense, nothing we do really can be pleasing. Now, I know it's not that we shouldn't do things. I'm not, I'm not saying that because God gives us that heart who, that we want, to, we want to serve God. We want to do the most perfect things for God. We yeah. want to obey him. That's the heart of God in us from yeah. the new covenant. But it's nothing. It's only through Christ that it can count. Right. Correct. Both tracking together, always inseparable. I just not, I got a message from uh, Mordecai. Mordecai's traveling on his phone, which is about to die, but he does have some things to say. So we'll just let him do his little bit now. And then if his phone dies. Um, but I, he and I had had a discussion earlier on in the week where we were discussing the guilt offering and the sin offering and the differences between them. Now, the, sin, the guilt offering is interesting, isn't it? It's, a, it's one that's for intentional sin, and there was a, a way to prepare it. The sin offering is, is the one you're allowed to eat. Now, that sounds bizarre. Think about it. You know, some guy comes along, I, you know, I'm going to put my hand on the animal, I'm going to impart my sin into the animal, then you can kill it, and then you can eat it. Why would you want to eat sin? You know, that just sounds nuts. But that is the, is the one that you're allowed. Now, what is, the, is going on? So, so Mordecai, any thoughts on when Jesus says he has become our sin offering or, or yeah. anything like that? Or touching something holy and becoming holy? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. I would like to read some verses from the New Testament where we see Jesus as a sin offering. First of all, it's in Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for him, uh, for sin. And then in Hebrews, we see it again in chapter 13, 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, and again, in 1 Peter, 
chapter 1 and 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but precious blood as of a lamp unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we read that Jesus was the sin offering and see in the verse that we currently read that everything that touches the sin offering becomes holy. I'm wondering so, if you have to be holy to touch it, though, because that interpretation, which is the Hebrew, is not clear, huh? That was my point. No, no, it says whatever touches it shall become holy, it says. Let me finish one second. So if Jesus was and is the sin offering, and if everything that touches the sin offering becomes holy, then are there any verses in the New Testament where things that touch Jesus become holy or healed? Well, we see it clearly in Mark. Mm -hmm. It says, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was feel, uh, healed. So we clearly see that the stories that are written in the New Testament are not just made up stories. In fact, we have similar stories in the very Old Testament. <laughs> Let's look at uh, the second Kings verse uh, chapter 13 and read something from Elisha or Elisha as we say in Hebrew. It says, Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. Oh, yeah, the as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. When the man touches the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Wow. Yeah, Mani, yeah. Second Kings 13, where were you reading? I'm, uh, oh, yeah, Second Kings 13. 14 and on, yeah. yeah. It, there's a tradition that this also happened with um, Dumliel's grave, where they buried yeah. Stephen. Yeah. That, the, that after Stephen died, Dumliel buried Stephen in his tomb. And then later, somebody else died, and they quickly just put him into this tomb. And he came back to life, and they got so scared about it, they sealed the tomb and said, nobody gets buried in here anymore because they keep coming back. You know? um, in fact, what I think, think is, Aaron, that maybe that woman knew that Jesus was a sin offering, and maybe she just knew the verse that whatever touches it becomes holy. So. Right? Well, and the fact that he was healing everyone left, right, and center 24-7. Yes, but she didn't ask him to heal him or her. She just thought that if I touch his garment. So there's a difference between Jesus healing people and this woman touching Jesus' garment. So yeah, I guess that's it. what that's I just wanted to point good. out. Yeah. Thanks, Modi. Awesome. Appreciate that, buddy. Okay. Yeah, Modi. Oh, Modi. Yes. Sorry. Can I just ask a question to Modi? Um, yeah. there, is a, there is a verse in, in the book of Haggai, and it kind of deals with this issue of um, transference. And I will just read it in second in Haggai 2, verse 12. It says, 11 says, This is what the Lord of hosts says. Ask the priest for a ruling. If a man carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and he touches bread, stew, wine, oil, and any other food, does the item become holy? And the answer there was no, replied the priest. So when we look at this law, that anything it touches becomes holy, but this is consecrated meat, this is holy meat. 
but it doesn't make any of this thing holy. And of course, we, we know the verse 13 that says, if one who is defiled by the contact of the corpse touches any of this, does it become defiled? Yes, it becomes defiled, the, uh, the priest answers. You know, it's, it's as if um, the, the uncleanliness of the corpse has more, more um, how do you put it in, 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 um, in medical terms, um, it's more transparent yeah. Um, yeah. Than, than the holiness. Is this the reason why the Cohens can't visit uh, cemeteries? Yes, Cohen cannot visit the cemetery. Because the dead can impart an unholiness onto the... Yeah, okay, so, so Shimshon's got something there that death has some sort of power as well. Uh, it's, uh, it, it can also transfer its uncleanliness. Maybe that's the reason why God says, don't bring death into my presence. I mean, if you're the Lord, you know, what do you care? Yeah. But um, there's something about about the, the stain of death, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, Neville, you've, you've got a hand raised. Yeah, thanks. I was just going to um, suggest something that on a reflection on what Motti said about the woman whose uh, issue of blood was healed. It was not just her who had this idea that if only I touch the hem or the, the corner of his garment, I'm going to be healed. Actually, there were whole villages, whole swathes of people had, had exactly the same idea. We can read, we read this in the New Testament. And a key thing is that of, because of the Hebrew word kanathim, meaning corners and edges or borders, um, the tassels, the tzitziot, were attached to the corners of the garment. And, and it was referred to as kanathim in, in the Hebrew. Now, in Malachi... There's this verse about the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his kanathim, in, in, his, in his wings. So the same Hebrew word is used for edges, corners, borders, wings. And so this, this verse, that the son of righteousness will have healing in his kanathim, I think was a thing that so many people had latched onto, realizing that, oh, if only I touched the tzitziot of, of the great rabbi, the teacher, I'm going to be healed. So it's, yeah. there's, a, there's a key word there to do with the, the, the Hebrew word kanafim, which ties these together. Yep. Very good. Excellent. All right, uh, Yvonne, and then the Butterfields. Yeah, mine was uh, just about what Madi had said. Thank you so much. I love that, Madi. Um, there is, so judgment does fall when the unclean meets the holy, like in Leviticus, the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice, um, with, while well, brings the uncleanliness on him. Then there's the Nadabi and Abu, the un, un, unauthorized unholy fire. So they had judgment. So judgment. So, so taking that to Yeshua, um, so, so there's this concept of when judgment meets holy, there can be consequences. I mean, when, when, when the unclean meets the holy, there's judgment. But when the unclean meets Yeshua, then... He beats them, yeah. Exactly. And then the other thing is, um, Mahdi, he's a sin offering, hata, but then there's the transgression and there's the iniquity. So when you talk about sin, are you talking about those three? Because remember, so when I had, I think I mentioned this with many, many, a couple of Oh, maybe a month ago. Does he cover what does exactly he covers it all? So, Mari, when you say sin, are you talking about as well as the hata, the transgression and the iniquity? Not 100%. We actually all know the Paul just says he has become our sin offering. And 
all we have to go back in is what does he yes. mean by that? Because we have what we are reading now. Is, um, Except, Aaron, in Isaiah 6, it does say this one thing, that um, when the coals are, coals are taken from old, under the altar and they touch um, Isaiah's lips, he, yep. the angel there says, your, your, the seraphim said, your sin, your iniquity has been forgiven and you're purged and your mm. sin has been taken away. Yes, yes. So yes. iniquity is purged and sin's taken away. And that was yep, by fire. Just, hmm. Yeah, by just, that offering. When Nadabi, oh. yeah. But then when Nadab and Abiyu offered strange fire, they got their booties kicked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a matter yeah, well, of the heart. Oh, yes, absolutely. It, it is always a tracking of the heart. They, they, they track um, together. When, when thinking about this fire, okay, this, this eternal flame, because you know, we're, we're reading these this sort of offerings that are coming up and, and, and God gets this uh, point saying, make sure this thing's burning all the time. Oh, what's the point of that? Let's remember that the fire started from heaven. Mm -hmm. We haven't actually got to it yet, but Leviticus 9 says that fire comes down from heaven and burns up the burnt offering. So the eternal flame, the perpetual fire that we continue, starts by God. Now, that's a nice little piece of theology. God starts the fire. Who keeps the fire going? Reverend, can I answer to Yvonne's question? Yes. So, Yvonne, since we are talking about the Messiah, so I think he covers everything else. Okay, Nahon. <laughs> um, just to add in today, um, Yvonne, you know, you said um, when Nadab and Abihu, when they offer the strange fire, or when they offer the strange offering, they got, um, they got burnt and they died by the fire. But if you look at what Moshe said, um, to Aaron, he says, this is what the Lord says concerning those who must come close to him, that they must, you know, hold him in honor. They must, they must sanctify him. And, you know, it, it still talks about purging. And um, God taking them out is actually purging them, you know, you know uh, in a way so that we'll continue to maintain that holiness in the, in the, in the Mishkan. Right. So my version, right, Ben Aaron, is that everyone who touches them must be holy is the accurate interpretation. In other words, when you come to God, you have to be holy versus it's making you holy. Is that well, um, it, I would be very reticent to, especially in biblical Hebrew, to say this is definitely the way it should be done. <laughs> um, perceiving that you've got a translation and some other people have a translation and there could be two levels of understanding. And it's very difficult to turn a translation into definitely one. So what would be the good Jewish answer for which interpretation is correct? Both. Yes. So most likely we've got a very uh, interesting Hebrew text, not 100% sure how to run with it, has multiple levels of meaning. Answer, both. But, of course, as a, as a translator, we really only can only pick one. So who's holy? You're holy because you touched it. Who's holy? You're holy because you've got uh, the holiness is now within you and you as a holy person can proceed forward to touch it. And they, they're running concurrent. Um, I want to just push us on to the eternal fire. So here you have this altar before the Lord and he would like this eternal flame to be burnt. Okay. Why? You know, what's so special about that? What sort of spiritual lesson 
Okay, let's think. What are we learning from the Lord if he's telling us to make fire burn for forever? What spiritual lesson are we learning, even as disciples today, about an eternal flame? What does even an eternal flame mean? What does it, what, 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 what does it bring up for you? Holiness. Anything? Okay, holiness. Okay. Christ is my righteousness is kind of the new, new covenant. Okay. Interpretation. Okay, but think of fire. Fire. Just when if you've got an eternal flame on an altar, do you immediately leap to Christ as my righteousness? Most likely not, but, but if you do, great. It speaks more of um, God's spirit. Okay. In the form of the fire on the people on Pentecost. Okay. And um, also appeared in the burning bush to Moshe, um, you know, in the form of the menorah. And, um, of course, the, the Lord does continually ask for the fire to be kept burning. And um, it, it means a lot for him. Uh, for me, it's yeah, constant, I have... It's constant refining. It's, it's about being refined by the Holy Spirit consistently. I mean, the Lord God is a consuming fire. Lord mm. Jesus came with unquenchable fire. So we have to always be in that position of being refined. Okay. Okay, nice. <laughs> And the concept of like, you know, the fire kept, you had to keep going day and night, like for the burnt offering day and night. And during the day, they would have other things at night. It was the only thing that happened. And, and the whole thing is like, you know, the fire being day and night is like how it's making atonement for us. And that's continual. That has to be on a continual basis that it has to be fed. It has like uh, David said, he, God is a consuming fire. And of course our sins need to be atoned for so it's like you know it's like it's, it's like this whole concept of it just needs to atone for us sure and then of course let, let's also note within that al- analogy now whenever we talk about analogies we can kind of run with them probably more than they should but um let's remember that the fire is fed not by sin the fire is fed by by priests just burning wood like it's not. I thought, no, the animal. You have to have one in the day and the, in the evening. Yes, yes. The fire keeps burning, right? The animal isn't the thing that keeps the fire burning. The fire keeps the animal burning, and the priests have to tend the fire. Don't want to run too much with it, but I know <laughs> that there's got to be spiritual applications of this for us today. So I'm looking, yeah. looking. Go for it, David. Uh, sorry, Aaron. What about the idea that? But uh, Lord, the Lord Jesus says, let your light so shine before men okay. that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Interesting. That's not a bad, interesting thought. You, you've got, whenever we have the temple of God or the, or the, the tabernacle in Shiloh or whatever, there's always light attached to it with the ever-present menorah, with the eternal flame, with this sort of you know perpetual uh, pillar of cloud that, that says so. That's an interesting thought, David. Let your light so shine before men, which is, of course, is he says that they may see your faith. Good, your, works. Your good works, your good works. Yes, so they run concurrent. Your faith and the light that shines in you reveals your, your good, good deeds. Works. They run concurrent. Kate, Scotland. Mine was the same thing. It's it's we talk about we need to we need to shine light because it casts out the darkness. Man. We don't want darkness in our temple. We don't want darkness in our in our hearts. We don't want darkness in our lives because the evil one is in the dark. So the light is casting out the darkness as well. Yes, absolutely. And 
And, it, and in the New Testament, we often say, you know, um, the darkness couldn't understand the light. Yes. You know, men loved darkness more yeah. than light. And you're like, why would you love darkness more? But there's something about it. But, the, but we, we are, as children of the light, we, we have a different view on it. But there you go. Part of our job is to maintain a perpetual light. Part of our job is not to let the light diminish, never to let it go down, constantly to shine forth, present our sacrifices our bodies as a living sacrifice, a perpetual lifelong service, which is an interesting spiritual thought. Rocky from uh, Washington, is that right? Yes. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, Seattle. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I believe the uh, modern day Olympics borrowed the, uh, the flame. Oh. Yeah, I wonder why they did that. I mean, there are, there are eternal flames in most cities, usually to fallen dead. But here you have it appearing in the, in the Bible. God says, you keep, a, you keep a fire burning in front of me all the time. And it's got to have some spiritual application. Physical application, I get it. Priests got to do their job. But there's, uh, there's something for the worshiper who comes and sees a fire. What would he see and, and see inside the fire? Would it remind him of the burning bush? Maybe. Would it remind him of oh, the fiery yeah. images from Mount Sinai and the giving of the Torah? Maybe. I mean, sometimes images can be very powerful to a worshiper. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm, I'm actually making a lot of this stuff up. But um, <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. You know, Aaron, in the dedication of the temple of Solomon, it said that um, they, when the fire came to consume the sacrifice, it came in the form of a lion and um, oh. consumed the sacrifice. You know, so I, I think it's it falls in line with what you're saying. Cool. <laughs> but again, but again the butter had your hand up before me. Uh, <laughs> When you see the life of um, Samuel, the prophet Samuel, you see that his duty was a priestly duty to keep the fire burning on the altar, but the fire went out and um, he heard um, Eli's voice calling him. Of course, he was afraid that, oh, I've done something wrong. The fire has gone out from the temple. But of course, it wasn't Eli that was calling. Um, God used that opportunity to to speak to him but you know it's it's very interesting that it was when the light went out from the temple that god called Samuel. yes i like that thank you very much and yes who's that is that roddy yes go for it go all the way back to genesis i think it's chapter three what does god put in place to guard the garden of eden His Fire temple, angel? it's the ketuvim or cherubim with the uh Flaming sword. Flaming sword, yeah. Okay, so, so what, what, what's the connection there? Perpetual well, I mean, fire is getting the garden, of Eden? the garden of Eden is God's temple, his original temple. Yes. And so in front of the temple of man, he has the flame burning continuously. The angel is guarding the garden of Eden continuously, nonstop with the flaming sword. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I, okay, I, I understand. But that's, that's, that's that said in a negative way, though. Here the fire is something positive. Why would that be a negative way? Why not a positive way? Well, because you couldn't get back to the garden. 
It says to no, it says to guard the tree of life. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So in that way, it could be positive. Yep. All right. Yeah. I mean, no uh, different than this flame that's burning, because God's not going to let sin come past the flame. And so the flame is put there in the temple in order for these sin offerings to be burnt. Sin, sin is not going to get past that point to come in there for God. Right. The, the, actual, the actual fire offering is for everything. So it includes the olah, everything that goes up, because the, the, the burnt offering, the olah, is a perpetual status of us trying to get higher and higher and higher. We're not trying to stay static. We're trying to get better. Every day we're trying to learn a little bit more, trying to be a little bit better, disciple of Jesus. We're trying to have more of the spirit, etc. Wait, 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 wait. wait, But you're either righteous or not righteous. Sorry, Rock. You're either righteous or not righteous. It's not, you can't kind of get, there's no levels of righteousness, right? So are you a better disciple today than you were 10 years ago? How do you define that? What do you mean? Well, I'm just asking. You can define it yourself. You know yourself. No, and I think so. It's not. A, it's not a question about whether is the is my level of do I have a level of righteousness? It's think think on different levels. Don't don't go so black and white. Think a bit a bit more fluid, a bit more um, rounded. Is that okay. am okay, I yes. am I a better disciple today than I am yesterday? And hopefully the answer is yes. You get better you run a race you get closer to work the, out your salvation with you. work out yeah, yeah all, all of those sort of traditions it's not trying to say that my level of righteousness is better than yours although there are righteous people and saints and people who are models which we look for okay uh, janet from canada you haven't had a chance to say something but go right ahead well i'm, I'm going maybe in a different direction but i'm thinking of both in acts um the <clears throat> the the believers uh, were continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, and also in Ephesians. Um, so, so the to me, I'm thinking of if we are daily and always being filled with the Holy Spirit, is that is that keeping the fire going? And is that we'll we'll be conscious of not letting sin into our lives because we'll be sensitized to, um, to me, it's, it's sort of like keeping the fire burning on the altar of our hearts. Um, So, um, and what you were saying about, I mean, I better disciple, well, there be, there can be areas of the fruit of the spirit that are more developed in your life than they perhaps were 10 years ago. Yeah. Because, yeah. So, but I, I just, I mean, there's just such an image of, of fire with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, can um, I just, and, can and, I just pick and, up on that thought? Because yeah. uh, I wanted to say something exactly on that topic that the sages in Jesus' time said that the um, temple, the second temple, lacked five things. And things like, you know, they didn't have the prophetic word and they didn't have the Urim and Thummim, but they did not have the holy fire. So for hundreds of years, the temple, and they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant either. I mean, these things are well known. But this thing about they did not, the fire did not fall from heaven on, on the altar of the second temple. And they, this was persisted for hundreds of years. Then there came a day when there was a rushing mighty wind that filled the house with noise. 
And when God had got people's attentions, he said, look at these guys. And fire did not fall on the altar. Fire fell on people, the 120 people that were gathered there. And this fire was the holy fire, and it's never gone out. Amen. Awesome. Amen. All right. Yes. And, that's, and that's what we see in, in, right as we see all throughout the Bible. God starts the fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our job, brothers and sisters, keep it burning. So there's no Shekinah glory in the Jewish temple then for for centuries. Is that the idea, Mike? Yeah, and yeah, and the yeah. Uh, Roman Pompey walked into the the Holy of Holies and said, "So there's nothing here." Yes. Well, there <clears throat> there was no Ark of the Covenant in the Second Temple, so no Shekinah. Yes, the. What we see in Ezekiel is he prophesied very visually, very apocalyptically, you know, very eschatologically, um, the Shekinah leaving the the temple. Then the temple is destroyed. And when the the second temple is rebuilt, it's not very well done. People are very upset. We're not not talking about King Herod's temple here. That's, That's a nice, magnificent building. And everyone's really just stunned by it. But the one that preceded it, the one with Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, yeah. they yeah. were a little bit like, oh, yeah, it's not so, so good. We don't, we're missing so much. And one of the things that they were missing, which is written about in the Talmud, is yes, the fire from heaven didn't come down and consume the, the offering anymore. And um, the gold. Yes. Yeah. It was a poor temple. That's what we read from in the Talmud. Too, yeah, so. It was poor. It was touched up by Herod, which makes it look so good by the time Jesus gets there. But that's that's a different story. So um, Aaron Gan wrote uh, something which was quite good. I think I'll read it out for um, our listeners, which is a discussion that we were having between Sharon and myself. And he says, um, I think what Sharon is getting at is what we as Protestants have understood as the difference between righteousness being declared right before God and sanctification being made holy. In this sense, we are declared righteous by the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. However, sanctification is something that we work at, and we have various levels of it. And some people are further on the process than others. And I think that's a pretty good description of the difference of, of that too. And, it, and, and we, what we shouldn't do is, is, is link those two words together. That we do. Uh, sometimes in our preaching and sometimes in our exegesis. And we probably don't mean it. But um, anyway, thanks, Aaron. Well done. It's always good to have um, uh, academic students and people who are doing PhDs. Uh, it's always there. good to have double Aaron's in the Zoom. Double Aaron. There you go. We've got a double, double Aaron. Kate from triple, Scotland. Triple, triple Aaron's. Who is the third one? The little guy. The little guy the from Czech, in Czech, in Czech yeah. Republic. Oh, the Czech Republic. Okay. It's, it's, just, it's a little thing from me, and I, I'm not an academic. I don't know the Bible particularly well, and so that's why I'm studying and trying hard. But what I what I see and what I sense is that wherever there is fire, and think about it, if there's a fire in a hearth, we sit round it. If there's a bonfire, we stand round it. We're drawn to fire. We're drawn to that light. And. Um, in 2012, when the Olympics were held in London and the flame was going around the country, where I live, they run the flames through various towns. It's obviously not run completely, but they do run it. It's a series of runners. And when the flame ran through my town, I made sure I had a day off work and I went to watch it because 
the once in a lifetime thing. And I've got to tell you, the high street was absolutely packed just to watch a man run with a torch. And the, it was like, you could feel the atmosphere. There was, as he ran, there was like a surge of emotion amongst the people all around. And, and whether it's the symbolic idea of the flame being carried from one place to the next, which we responded to, and I think that's it. But I think we, the symbolic reaction that we have to fire, it's not just as a light bringer, we're drawn to it like moths to the flame. I think we're drawn to the, to the light, we're yep. drawn to flame. And I always like the analogy of fire when we think about it, it's something attractive, it's something warming, it's something that can be very helpful with keeping us alive and heating and cooking. It's also incredibly dangerous, you know, uh, and, 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 and that's also God. He's, he's good, he's loving, he's kind, but he's also going to come back as a judge, which is also very, very interesting. And he's holy. Yeah. And, he's, and he's holy. And, in, and I want to, my turn now to talk, I want to jump on something. Um, this whole idea of touching things that are holy. Okay, you know, this whole, we, we, we sometimes in, in our Western culture, uh, because of our traditions and our history, we, 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 we sort of, we don't value holy things as much as probably we should. Um, there's all kinds of reasons why we do. Um, we're sometimes reticent that other denominations may have overemphasized holy relics to a, to a certain degree, but... The Bible does have and talks about, including in this passage, that there are things that are holy, and if you touch them, you're, you can become holy. And if you touch them in an unclean state, that's not so positive. Like Uzzah, when he reached out to steady the ark, and he died. It's not like he was a bad guy, you know, um, these kinds of things. But in terms of the sin offering, which is the one that you're allowed to eat, which is just when you think about it, quite bizarre, because this is the one that people are putting their sins on and you're allowed to eat it and consume it. Spiritually, in our present way of worship, for some of us, what ritual do we do where we eat something? Breaking of bread. Yes, we have the breaking of bread. And is Jesus the Messiah not called our sin offering for us? Now, we're not, not talking about transubstantiation. I'm not going to go down that line. But you can see the spiritual application that's applied here where you sit down and have a table and you remember the Messiah is our sin offering. And in Leviticus, you eat that one, and, uh, which is very interesting, even though let's also remember that, at the, at the, that what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper was a Passover, which had nothing to do with sin. So. I want to also put that down on the table too. It's not, it's not easy to just make them all leap over. But when I was thinking of in terms of holy things, touching holy things, um, eating holy things, you know, this sort of idea that there are some, some parts of our worship where um, we gather together as the household of faith, the priesthood of all believers, and we engage in this thing. It's a very simple meal, small little bit of this, small little bit of that, but have a very powerful spiritual um, meaning and experience. Yeah. Does that mean we should start eating kashele mehadrin? <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, no. <laughs> but, uh, but thank you. <laughs> no barbecue ribs. <laughs> no more Barbar barbecue ribs. Hush your mouth, Yvonne. Okay. Uh, uh, Vida or David? 
I was thinking about what you said with regard to the sin offering and Christ obviously is our sin offering, which we, which we, as you said, we just eat. But I just noticed from Hebrews 9, 28, it says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look to him, he appears a second time without sin unto salvation. And I do agree with you. It's not, Christ isn't, didn't become sin. He's never, he's holy. He's, he's that sin offering. And so when it says um, he, when he comes back the second time, he's coming apart from that sin offering. So to me, it's showing we only have the short period now today where we can partake of that sin offering. Oh, yeah, it's a good sense. warning. That is an excellent warning. You know, uh, labor while it is still day for the daylight is fading when you can do no more work. And sometimes we miss that sense of urgency. Yeah, um, yeah good point. It looks like uh, I'm going to be preaching at Christchurch for the uh, first of Advent. And for those that don't know the Christian calendar, Advent is actually the start of the Christian calendar. And um, the first week of Advent, you always talk about judgment. So everyone's looking forward to the first coming, you know, the, the baby Jesus and Christmas is always wonderful. But, but the way the lectionary is designed, it, it always sets up like, okay, fun's coming. But before you get to fun, just want you to know Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he is a lion. And you might not like it. So everybody get right now. And you have this one session where you talk about, you talk seriously about about judgment, or you're supposed to, if whoever. Uh, so I might um, I might plagiarize that a bit, Vida. <laughs> Tell people you've only got a certain amount of time here. So it's appointed once for man to die, then the judgment, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Sharon, you're up. Yeah, that just a nice benediction for us, like uh, to comfort our souls in the process of uh, post-judgment. First uh, Thessalonians 5.23, now may the God of uh, peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So to Neville's point, that spirit came in power on us and empowers us to, to live out the life he's called us to. Amen. 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 All right, guys, to make a summary um, of this, we have a variety of different offerings, even though Leviticus has already talked about this, so it kind of does it in a different order. But as it sets up, it, it, it brings in some very interesting spiritual um, applications for us as believers into this day. How do we approach holiness? And that includes um, coming into the Lord's pre presence appropriately, inappropriately, whether that's with a hard action or even with the appropriate clothing. Um, what do we consider things as holy and, and what's infectious? That, that uh, Wanting to find other faithful people and being near them so that we can infect each other. If we're always hanging out with the prostitutes, guess what's going to happen eventually? Hopefully you'll tell them about Jesus. But there's also some other options, okay? Um, so you always got to be a little careful. There are a lot of spiritual lessons about this eternal flame. God starts the fire. We keep the fire, and uh, and this idea that that it's um, a very special fire that for the Jewish people hadn't been going on for quite some time, but then was reappeared um, at, at Pentecost, which we have right now, but we need to maintain it, keep it, and and, uh, and keep it going. And this idea of being able to to consume um, the sin offering of which our Messiah is 
and what benefits that may or may not have uh, for us as a body of, of believers. So it's actually quite a lot there. When you think about it, when you look at the literalness and then take it down onto a spiritual level, can actually um, affect our walk, what should affect our walk as disciples of the Messiah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much for listening, whoever is on podcast land. May you and your families be blessed, and uh, may you have a fantastic Shabbat and, uh, and, and keep safe. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.